Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. It's a short text. And as soon as I read that, it's like, oh, the gig's up. They know I'm talking about money today. Nobody likes coming to church when the pastor's talking about money. <laughs> I've been there. And there's, there's gonna, not going to be a special offering or anything like that at the end of the service. This is not about twisting your arms. It's okay if you don't have your wallets and checkbooks, you're safe. This truly is a topic that the Bible speaks much about that Jesus spoke a lot about money. This text has three basic things. The first part, it says to honor the Lord from your wealth. That's something you can chew on for a while. I've been pondering that for a while because it's not really a clear instruction. It's just sort of like a principle, like your wealth, everything that you have, honor God with that. What does that mean? That's a good question. That's something that we each need to wrestle through and kind of decipher The second part, it says, and from the first of all your produce. And the final point is kind of there's this consequence so that your barns would be filled. I'm in the context of Valley Center, so some of us might actually have barns. But the idea is sort of provision that as we honor God with our wealth, there's this idea that he he takes care of us and that we need to trust in him and not be afraid. I want to give a few disclaimers before I start. One in particular, first, the system at the church for how we give and and how we, when you make a donation, you know, it's at the end of the year, you get a, a, a little thing for tax purposes of how much you gave. I very much shield myself from seeing who gave what. So I'm not looking out of the crowd of this morning of the two services going, oh, I know they gave this much and they didn't. Man, I really thought they gave and they don't give any. I, I don't know who gave what. I know how much comes in and how to manage it and to be responsible with the church's finances, but I'm not here addressing a situation. It bothers me that, um, just if I can speak you know, truthfully with you, it's a joke. Um, I, it really kind of bugs me that pastors most likely either never talk about money because they're afraid of offending somebody, or they talk about money when they have a project that they want to do. Like, oh, we have this we want to build a new building or we or giving's been low so let's start preaching on giving to kind of you know to to help guilt people into giving more that's this is really a top, i i want us to understand what god says about money i'm going to do the best job that i can in my own understanding much of this that i say today is how god has worked in my own life and the convictions that he's given me in this area I've kind of cranked out the Navy SEAL thing. I enjoyed that vocation. I did it till I was done with it for 12 years. I really like being a pastor. If this whole pastoring thing doesn't work out for me, I have two fallback vocations. My passions. The first is to be a travel agent. Like I would, that's what I want to do. Like I'd love like finding people cheap tickets and traveling and arranging the whole thing. I, I, I do. I love other cultures. I love you know, traveling, the excitement of it. The other thing that I would like to do, my, my, really my, uh, my second option, is a financial advisor. I like just like math. It, not, not math like, 
you know, calculus and the boring stuff. But like math, like budgeting and accounting and balancing the checkbook. I love that stuff. Drives Anna crazy. Like if I get stressed out, if I get worried about stuff and I have like free floating anxiety and I want to kind of just calm myself down, I'll pull out a piece of paper. I'll kind of start reworking a budget. Doesn't matter if it's a church's budget. Doesn't matter if my personal budget. Balance the checkbook. I just love that stuff. Like when it comes to investing and like, oh man, it gives me great joy. And I've learned over the years that I'm like in a very small percentage of people. Like that's just a a, a gifting that I have, that I, I enjoy. But I haven't always been that way. I joined the Navy while I was in high school. I was in boot camp 15 days after high school, did whatever that was, a couple months in boot camp. And I found myself in Virginia Beach, kind of like, you know, in freedom, now now a soldier or sailor at the time. I kind of view myself as a soldier, not as a sailor, but when you wear the Cracker Jack uniform, you know, the, you're a sailor, there's no way around it. And we got some liberty, that means you got some time off. And a bunch of us headed up somewhere to an Air Force base where there was a big exchange, a PX they called it. it was a, it's like the, the mall on an Air Force base. And I walked in there, and I don't remember the details so much. I spent much of that time inebriated and all kinds of stuff was going on in my life. But somehow I discovered that if you were active duty, there was like free credit available to you. Like all of this money just available for you to have that based on your rank, you were given this credit card and it was a shopping spree. And I went nuts. I like spent all of the money that they loaned to me that day on stuff that I don't even know what I bought. Like maybe... Pair of jeans, T-shirt, I don't know, maybe a radio. But I, I couldn't tell you this day what I got, but it was gone. The stuff was long gone, and the bills still came in. I continued on this spree when I realized I was on the East Coast, and I didn't have a car, and I walked by a used car dealer that with, you know, hey, E1 and up, easy financing. Hey, there's a sweet Jeep CJ7. I've always wanted one of those. Walk in, I was in and out, had myself a Jeep. To go do donuts in the mud in Virginia. That was, you know, one of my first run-ins with law enforcement. Got out of that one. A guy had mercy on me. I said sorry to the farmer. I guess it was, I don't really know the details, but I had my Jeep and I put it to use very early. And in a matter of weeks, I had something like $20,000 debt without even thinking about it. There was no relation that, hey, this money is going to come due and that, like, what's interest? The, 18-year-old gunner couldn't have told you anything about interest or how the whole thing works. I just kind of thought, hey, I'm a veteran, and they're hooking me up. This is like a big gift to gunner for his service. And it was, a, it was a hard, painful mistake. It took years to kind of, to, it took years to realize that it, just because somebody offered a credit card, I shouldn't take them up on it and, and, and run it all the way up. And this week I've come to one of the things I've discovered is as of May of 2011, it's estimated, which means they kind of take the gross credit card debt, kind of divide it by household. But the statistic is that the average U.S. household carries approximately $16,000 of credit card debt. That doesn't include car loans. That doesn't include student loans. That doesn't include your mortgage or any other. That's just credit card your Amex, MasterCard, Visa, Discover, and whatever else there is out there. That's a huge amount of debt. 
the, managing money and debt problems, to use the president's words, like our country is taking a financial shellacking due to irresponsibility and mismanagement at the individual level that trickled all the way up to the national level. And our nation has seen all kinds of problems. When I do premarital counseling, one of the topics, like a whole week is devoted to the whole money issue. Because there's three strains in a marriage. One of the most common is financial strains. Finances, dealing with money within a household leads to a ton of divorces and just broken relationships. Leads to like stress, anxiety, depression. I didn't really have time this week to, to see how many you know, suicides are linked to debt that's lingering over. But it's something that is weighty and it's a huge problem. And the Bible is very clear. It gives us wisdom for how we should handle finances. I think the big idea of, of money and dealing with Christians, really all individuals under God, what God wants from every human being is to understand that our wealth, our money, our assets, that we're merely stewards of it, that we're managers, that we are taking care of stuff that's not necessarily our stuff that's on loan to us from God. We're not going to read the story, but in a few weeks, we're going to come to Luke chapter 19. In verses 15 through 26, you guys can see I have a whole list of verses that I'm going to reference or talk. If you want to write them down and study, they're all there for you. But in this story in Luke chapter 19, it's where Jesus tells the parable of the talents that this owner, this master, had, he was going to leave for a period of time. He'd given five mina to his workers or talents. Different translations use different words. It was each one was equivalent to, I believe the amount was equivalent to three months wages. I'll have all the facts when we get there in Luke. He left him with five minas or five talents. He leaves for a while. When he came back, the one came and said, hey, listen, I took what you gave me. I basically invested it, did whatever. It's now, I now have 15 minas to give back to you. Here's your five plus 10. Guy says, great, well done, well done. The next guy came and said, okay, I did this. Here's your five and here's five more. He says, great job. The third one comes to him and said, hey, here's your five back. I buried it in the sand. Nobody stole it. Nobody took it. And he looked at me. He's like, why didn't you even at least put it in the bank and put interest on it? Like use a a little bit of wisdom. And he was scolded. And from this story, there's this picture that God has entrusted to us our stuff. And he expects us to be good stewards. And in the context of stewardship, there's sort of three things that I'm kind of going to do out of reverse order. But I say that there's there's the aspect of provision or, or saving, investing, preparing for future events is one aspect that the Bible calls us to do. The second is to provide for our family and to be sharing with um, those in need, that we be generous people. And the final, which I think is really the backward, but I'm going to give a whole section talking on this. And that's generosity in giving towards God's plan. The first here, in Proverbs chapter 6, if you go there, I can't... Re- I have such a terrible time reading this because there's a kid's song by Judy Rogers that goes along. So ever since I've been married with Anna, whenever we read this, she breaks it out into singing. I'm not going to make my wife sing it for you. 
But she sings a song, Go to the Ant. Ants are vicious little guys. This has been one of, since I've been in Valley Center, I've been in total warfare. I've talked about it over the last few months. Like, I now have boric acid. This is my new attack. I think I've, I think the, you know, the big battle's pretty much fought, but they're still stragglers. And I don't think it's over. They're resilient little creatures. And the Bible, they're so resilient that the Bible calls people to look to the ant for wisdom. <laughs> Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. And so from this passage and others, but I just chose one in Proverbs trying to stick to our theme this month. Like the idea that the ant knows that winter's coming. So during the summertime, it begins like gathering stuff and saving and preparing for this future need. To apply this to practical terms, the Christian is called to save, that, you're, that you'd have a savings of cash for like an emergency, to take care of stuff that comes up, that you'd be saving for retirement down the road. God is totally for us preparing for the future. I love David Ramsey, and I will be referencing him a lot. I totally endorse everything he says. I don't necessarily do everything he says, but in the big picture, he has a lot of wisdom. Because he made a lot of mistakes. I'm hoping that we can have a David Ramsey course in the next year or two years eventually. Like, they're really good. We did a sample of the first one a few, like, I think it was last year. And in this video, what he said, he shared a really good point. He said his number one step that he wants everybody to do, he doesn't care how much debt you have. He wants you to get $1,000 saved in your account to handle emergencies. And he said the reason is, is because life happens to all of us. Your car's going to get a flat tire. You are going to need new brakes. You are going to whatever. Like, and it always comes at the worst time. And he says for most Americans, what happens is they go down the road, their car breaks down, they have a $400 automobile emergency. But because of their lack of preparation, their lack of saving, they go from having not one emergency, an automotive emergency, they go to having a second emergency, a financial emergency. Because how are they going to pay for it? So they're going to have to finance it. They're going to have to do it. And then it throws them into this never-ending cycle where you get basically enslaved on providing for your family or providing in general. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul says that as we, as we work, the believer, that as they're, as they're saving, as they're giving, their money should be used to provide for the cares of their immediate family. And as a, as a husband responsible for like caring for my family and, and, and providing, this one scares me. 
Like Paul says to the person who's in Christ that you're saved by faith alone, totally of God's grace, that if you're not providing for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So the Bible makes it very clear that there's this idea of caring for your own. He would go on to expand in Ephesians 4.28. He says, he who steals must steal no longer. Stealing is when you take something that's not yours for your own possession. Paul says to that person, he who steals, you must steal no longer. But he goes on, he says, get a job, essentially. But rather he must labor. That means get a job, go get work, performing with his own hands what's good. And the reason he's to do this, he says, so that he will have something to share with somebody that's in need. So in Ephesians to this church, that's healthy, that everything's going well. He says, listen, if there's somebody who's stealing, they've come to faith. Now they're a Christian. Now they're walking with Christ. You don't have a job. You're still stealing. Stop it. Just cut it out. Stop stealing. Get a job. Go work. And then as you get stuff, you're to have open hands. And there's going to be people that have needs so you can share with others that you can contribute to the needs, that you can provide for your family, that you can care for others. There's just this whole picture of the Christian in the Bible of of being open-handed, that generous people, not worshiping money as God, but worshiping God as God, and God's the one who trusts us with providing for us, with giving us our money, our resources, and then we can share. Which leads to the next point. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse six through eight. I'm going to kind of breeze through this. Really, Second Corinthians chapter eight and nine go together. These two whole chapters speak on the Christian giving. There's many principles in there that help us understand the attitude to have within giving. I'm taking one of these and just reading this picture, kind of speaking on our generosity and sharing towards God's plan. It says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed. Now, we're going to look at some principles. There's a lot in this passage. But the main point that I want to look here is that as we share, as we're generous, as we see God's plan, and as we give, God says he likes that. We're going to see a lot of points that it's nobody's twisting your arm. It's you're doing out of your own accord. You're doing it cheerfully that God likes it that way. And to trust that as you give, God will take care of you. Kids crack me up. They really crack me up because they helped me to see what I was like then. My friends and I, we had a saying, you never touch another man's fries. This in marriage has been an area that I've really had to work on. Like if we were eating French fries and a buddy reached over to grab one of your fries, you had like total and full right to take a steak knife and just stab his hand to get it out of there because that's your area. Those are your fries. You never touch another man's fries. My wife has a totally different policy. (laughs) Fries are fair game. Share, share alike, you know. And so God's really worked in like my French fry issue since I've been married. I'm a little bit better. I tend to like buy her her home bag of fries, even if she says she doesn't want any. I'm confessing this. It's an area I'm working on. 
But with my two daughters, I can sit at a table like one of the treats. They love chips. Like there's a couple brands of chips that they like. And I can have the big old bag, like a Costco-sized bag on top of the fridge. And the kids can be at the table. And you can reach down and give like a little pile of chips to the one. Or even better, just put a little pile of chips in the middle on a plate and say, share the chips. No way. (laughs) Kids like start sorting and dividing. It's like, just eat what you want out of the one plate. There's a whole bag. I can reload it. Kids don't like sharing. You didn't like sharing when you were a kid. You would fight and argue. And as a parent, I'm sitting there going, do you not understand? I could buy a whole pallet of Doritos if I wanted to. This is like El Chirito. We have a bottomless pit of chips. Just share. When it goes down, I'll put more in there. And it, it just doesn't work out that way. My chips. It's just like finding Nemo, those seagulls, right? Mine, 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 mine. Now you can't even hear seagulls without even hearing that if you've seen Finding Nemo. And God's saying that he entrusts us with stuff and don't like hoard it. close. Don't be afraid to share. He has all of the resources. And if you share, it's not suddenly like your safety net's gone. He can take care of you. But there's more on tithing later or giving. And as I look at the big picture of stewardship, managing our, our wealth in a way that we bring honor to God, that we honor God with our wealth. One of the biggest problems I see in my own, that I've seen in my own life, that I've seen in other people's life, is debt is a huge barrier to honoring God. So what's the deal with debt? In Ecclesiastes, also written by Solomon, who wrote Proverbs, he says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When we went through Ecclesiastes, I couldn't, it seemed like just about every week I was quoting Mick Jagger, and I can't get no satisfaction. That song like summarizes Ecclesiastes. They say to the person who loves money that even when they get money, they won't be satisfied with it. Like as he gets abundance, as he gets more, it'll never bring satisfaction. It's vanity. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. I'm going to stop here and give a sidebar. The Bible never anywhere in it says that money is evil. Money is not the root of all evil. People have quoted that from the Bible. That's not what the Bible says. Look at what it says or listen to what it says again. For the love of money is a root. So it means a means that it's one of many. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. So he says that there's people that are kind of following with Solomon's wisdom. There are people that are so attached for the love of money that they want more, they want more, they want more, they chase it, they chase it, they chase it. They get a little bit of it. It doesn't bring satisfaction and they go after more. And in their quest for money, they deviate or they leave the true faith. They walk away from Christ. So what does this have to do with debt? Well, see, we've set up our culture in a way that our longing for stuff 
We might not have the resources to acquire it. God might not have blessed you at that time to acquire whatever it is you want. But he said, hey, just get this credit card. You can make it happen. Take action. This week, we took a couple days off. We went up to Anna's grandpa's house. And whenever I go up there, I get a whole lot more TV time. It's awesome just sitting around watching. I mean, he... There's a pecking order to who has a remote. Let's just say I never have the remote. So I watch whatever he wants to watch, which it's good most of the time. I mean, I like it. And But the commercials, there's like one of those commercials that's been stuck in my head. one eight seven seven cash now <laughs> They're on a bus and they're all singing this song. Everybody's laughing who knows this. And they make it sound like, just call the number and we'll pay you. It doesn't say we'll loan you. It says we'll pay you. Just like, just call us and we'll give you all the money you need. 1-877-CASH-NOW and and all these people. It's horrible. (laughs) Don't worry about trusting God to provide for you. You can have that now. Just call. Don't worry about the criminal interest rate or what you're doing. We're ripping you off. But you can have whatever you want and you get that loan and you get what you think you want. And like every Christmas, by about 2 p.m. on Christmas Day, everybody's sick of what they got bought and they want something new. The issue is what they're marketing against is the only thing that will bring satisfaction is Christ. Christ is the only thing that can deliver us our ultimate satisfaction. This, As we come into a relationship with him... This is what happened for me. I came to know that I started like the whole money thing. I started struggling over like, well, God and then there's money. And then he started impeding my life and convicting me. And he's never done. You do one thing and he kind of ups the ante so that you're still convicted. But this whole longing for satisfaction, we think that money will bring it and it won't. I read 1 Timothy 6.10, which says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. If you back up from that verse four verses, the 1 Timothy 6.6, we read, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And so it's a context of money. Paul says that godliness, when you come into a relationship with God and you start living for him and you're content with your relationship with him, it does money secondary. There's great gain in that. And I love the guy who I, I can't say his name. He's a pastor. He's Billy Graham's grandson. And he just wrote a book, Jesus Plus Nothing is Everything. And he said on a radio interview that in crisis, contentment means that you could be given millions and millions and millions of dollars and you gain nothing. Or you could lose everything that you have and you've lost nothing. It's contentment in Christ. Jesus in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, which we'll get to in a few weeks, he's heading to the cross. He's speaking to the people. So much teaching comes from where we're at in chapter 15 to where he's executed. It's like in your Bible, if you have a red-lettered Bible, it's like all red. It's all his teaching. And he says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. The context is money. Like if you follow that out, there's a bunch of Pharisees there who loved money, and they got all offended at him. And if you go to Matthew, but I don't want to go to Matthew because we've been in Luke and I want to stay in Luke. So you can't serve God and mammon or money. You can't do both. 
Paul in Romans chapter 13, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And the context of this is money. He just said, like, pay your taxes, pay your money. Like, it's, it's money. God's ordained the government. Pay your taxes. Don't grumble. Owe nothing to anybody. Don't owe anybody any money. Be debt free. And the question is, is why? And Jesus makes it clear that as you acquire debt, you become a slave to it. The more debt you have, the more of a slave you become. Or the way it feels is the more you get in debt, the less freedom you have. You're bound to it. And if you've been in debt or you're in debt, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a horrible feeling. I hated being there. I love David Ramsey. The, the, he has a podcast. I, I, he probably is on the radio somewhere. But one of the things he's famous for is like he lets people call in and scream, I'm debt free. Like when they've slaved away, like debt is horrible. Like there's a say, there's got to be a saying that equates to debt. But all I have is food. <laughs> A moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. (laughs) We know that one. It's so easy to eat food and to gain pounds. But what do you want to start? Like, wouldn't it be nice if we could take off the weight as easy as it was to gain it? Like, it's so much fun gaining weight, but losing it is not fun. Credit's the same way. You go into debt. You can get into, I guarantee most of us could go get into debt for like $20,000, $30,000 and set one phone call. You could spend it on whatever you want, but then getting out of that is a whole other story. Years and years and years. And so when these people call in to do their plasticectomies, where they cut their credit cards and they scream, I'm debt free, you can hear in their voice the liberation. Like in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, one of my favorite scenes is when Pilate is trying to get Jesus out from being condemned. And he thinks that the way, I mean, it's from the Bible, but in the movie, you know, he, he's kind of looking around and there's Jesus and there's Barnabas and Barnabas, or not Barnabas, Barabbas. And Barabbas is this, 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 this scraggly looking guy with like one tooth and a mess, murderer. And they basically, when they free him, I love the scene of that Barabbas when he runs out of there. He's like, I'm a murderer and they're letting me walk out. <laughs> you know, that's freedom. And these people that call in, I'm debt free. That's the freedom that they're feeling in their voices. It's a powerful freedom when you've been enslaved to debt and you through discipline and hard work get out of it. There's no greater feeling. A lot of us quote from Isaiah 6 where Isaiah stands there and God's appeared to him. And he says, here I am, Lord, send me. So many Christians use that. Lord, I'll go wherever you want to go. And they'll go. They'll apply for missions agencies. Almost every single missions agency that I'm aware of, one of the very first things they'll do is they'll run your credit report. They'll ask you how much debt you have. And whether you owe $1,000 or $10,000, they say, that's great. You're a great applicant. You're fine to go with us. But go pay off your debt first and then come back. They won't send you because they understand that you're in bondage, that God wants you to pay it. And if you're there and you're drowning in your debt and you can't see hope, there's hope. 
I'd encourage you, buy David Ramsey's book. If you're so drowning that you don't can't afford it, like we'll buy you a copy of that book that will help you. And one of the things that almost every financial advisor will tell you is that when you're looking at your debt, just pick the smallest one. Focus all your effort on paying the one that is the least amount. Chip away, work hard, pay it off. Then when you pay it off, you get a little feeling of victory. Then you go after the next one. Then you go after the next one. And then eventually, with a lot of discipline, it'll be gone. And then you've so trained yourself to start using these assets to like pay off this stuff. Now just continue saving and investing for the future. And then you can give. I love that you can give like nobody else gives. Which moves into the whole Christian tithing, the part we're like just excited. This is where he's going to ask for our money. I'm not. This is like me before a God, my conclusions. It has nothing to do with me being a pastor. I mean, which it does, but it, it really is about discipleship, that we're making disciples. And money very much is a form of discipleship. How we use it, it's just a tool. We can use it for his glory to honor him, or we can use it to dishonor him. The whole tithing thing for me, Miles McPherson, way back when, 12, 15, I don't know, it was years ago, I was just an act, I was a seal, going to church when I could go to church. I was growing, but there was still very much hypocrisy in my life. I was very much living in the world and then like kind of growing in my faith. And things were, the Lord was starting to bring things to a head. And I remember one night I was there at church and Miles had said something. He said that the Christian life can be measured in very three very tangible ways. He said, you open up your checkbook and see where your money's going. I thought at the time, well, this is great. I don't keep a checkbook. I just kind of spend my money. <laughs> so off that charge. But I knew in my heart I was guilty of that charge. There's your prayer life. How are you praying? Like, what's, what's your communication with God? And then there was a sex life. When it came to money, I knew I was guilty. And it began this journey of like, like just kind of wrestling with God and trying to figure out, like, what was I supposed to do? And a big question that's asked or is debated amongst Christians is, is the Christian the tithe? People will say, well, we're not under the Mosaic law. We're not obligated to tithe. And I'm going to give you what I think may open up a debate. I don't know. But this, I can only share with what I've concluded from the scriptures. The first, on tithing, I really like what Hank Hanegraaff says on tithing. <laughs> he says that tithing is training wheels for Christian giving. That as you tithe, it's a tool that helps us. And most that say, oh, it's not, we're not under the Mosaic law. But what I would say to that is we see... Tithing in the Old Testament before the Mosaic law was given, before Moses entered the scene in Genesis chapter 14. We're not going to read the passage, but you can go there for your own study. Abraham is there. This high priest, Melchizedek, shows up on scene. There's PhDs trying to figure out who this Melchizedek was. He's, it's sort of eternal. It was this Christ. Who was it? Hebrews chapter 7, the first like 10 or 13 verses talk about this story abram goes to melchizedek and he gives a tenth a tithe ten percent 
to him as an offering. This was not under the law. This was his example. So we do see tithing before the law was given. And if we go to the Old Testament law, if you do a study on it, it's just not as simple as people think. Like there's no clear kind of like, oh, just give 10% and you're good to go. If you start adding up everything, it's closer to like 33, 35% of all of the offerings that were there. Now it was a government, but it's just not as clear cut. And quite frankly, it was more than 10% when you started adding up all of the offerings for the law. Now, what do we learn about it from the New Testament about giving and how we're to respond? The first thing I see is that we are to, to give to the local church. Like whatever is your home church, if you're just visiting, this isn't, like a, this isn't like anything compelling anybody to do anything. But what I see in Scripture is that we're whatever your local church is, the local body that you're connected to, you're to give to that. I'd have you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Whenever we go to Corinthians, whenever you open your Bible and you find yourself in Corinthians, this is the church gone wild. This is the Jerry Springer of Christianity. There were massive amounts of problems. Paul wrote multiple letters to them, at least three. The one never made it into the canon. It was lost. And I don't know what he wrote in there. But in 1 Corinthians, they had written, and we have all of these problems going on. How are we supposed to handle it? And Paul addresses these. So we're only getting half the side of the thing, of the discussion. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the first of 14 verses, I'm going to read to them. The, the question is, is giving, and should we pay those that are, that are functioning as pastors? And Paul writes... Verse 1 of chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and, to, and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working, who at any time serves the soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it, who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about the oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you 
not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And so that was a long-winded sort of thing I just read. But Paul's basically defending the right of the local church, the pastors who are sowing. Like, listen, it's okay if you want to pay them, that there's an obligation that they can have a wife and a family and take care of themselves. And the point in all of this, I do think, my, and it's weird kind of saying this as a pastor because I didn't come to this conclusion as a pastor. I came to this conclusion as a Navy SEAL wrestling with my faith and studying and growing in the word and being convicted like, no, God like, probably wants me to give a little something. See, I started going to church not because I was a good guy. It was because a friend started nagging me, nagged me so much. Every week, will you go to church? Will you go to church? Yada, yada, yada. I heard it all before. And finally, I came up with an idea to shut him up. I thought it was genius. I'll go to church one Tuesday, but I'm wearing shorts and flip-flop and T-shirts. He's like, that's okay. The pastor's an ex-pro surfer. He'll be dressed the same way. I'll go like this. If you promise, you'll never ask me to go to church again. He said, no problem. I'll never ask you again. Just go this one time. I went the one time there was free pizza and drinks. So that was kind of, that kind of kept me coming back. So I went there once. It wasn't so bad. You know, I'm kind of like, this is okay, but real critical in my spirit. And I went again. Then I went again. Then I went again. Then I became a pastor. (laughs) And then the joke's on me, you know. But I remember being there, like, there was always free pizza. They'd always take an offer for the pizza. Like, hey, there's pizza. If you want to give, give. Like everything we do here, we take offering. Hey, we're going to do this. If you want to give, that's great. But we ne- like, we won't do events that keep people from coming that's based on money. If we can't do that, then we won't do that event because we want people to grow closer. And I remember like the pizza, like, you know, like, ah, I've been going there for months. Never put a dime in. Munching away on my like seventh piece of pizza. Oh, I love this place. I started thinking, man, maybe I should give something. Uh, I guess I've been kind. Of, I guess I could give something. So I slipped like a dollar in there. Hardly made up for the pizza I ate. I had bills to pay. I, you know, I was in debt. I had all this, all of the excuses. But then God began, like, really, like, hey, who do you think pays for the lights? You go to church at night. Who do you think paid for this building? Do you think there's just like some anonymous donor? Like, you know, I worked for the government. I thought money just kind of, you know, appeared. <laughs> And it started dying. Like, wait a minute. Like, there are people who give to make this all possible. Like, we have lights. We have this building. We have stuff. Because of generous people who said, you know what? I believe God's called me to give. And I'm going to give and partner with it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're not going to read it. If you continue, verses 1 through 4, there we see that Paul, talking about the money, he advised them to give regularly. Like, uh, on a weekly basis, give an opportunity for people to give. Give regularly and systematically. If we continue all the way to Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, which we don't have time to read the whole two chapters, we'll notice some things on Christian giving in these two, ver- these two chapters. In 8.3, we see that people gave according to their ability, 
And even beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. It wasn't because some pastor or somebody started twisting their arms and manipulating them and making grandiose promises that if they gave, all of this stuff would happen. That they, they gave according to their ability or beyond their ability and of their own accord. It wasn't because anybody pressured them. It says that in verse 5 of chapter 8 that they first like kind of gave themselves to God, that they went before God, they prayed, and they said, Lord, what do you want me to give? They gave themselves to the Lord, and after they gave themselves to the Lord, then they gave to the church. So they first sought God, this relationship. Lord, you've given me all of this. This idea, you've blessed me so much. What would you have me share? And God gave them whatever. Then they gave it to the church. Chapter 9, verse 5, that it was arranged beforehand, that they had made this commitment that they were to give. Somewhere along the line, I reached the point in my life where, like, really, my life was a mess. People always say, oh, people go to Christianity because it's a crutch. I'm like, brother, it's life support. My life was a total, it wasn't a crutch. I mean, I was like all systems on life support. Like I had totally made a blunder of it. And somewhere along the lines, as God began, like I gave my dollar, then I'd, you know, I'd throw in the courtesy 20 bucks. But then slowly as the idea of like tithing, I'd like, no, Lord, you've so blessed me. I'm going to give to you faithfully. Like, and I made this commitment. It didn't matter. I'd already made the decision. They purposed in their heart, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And then in that same verse, it says that God loves a cheerful giver. Literally, hilarious. See, when, when I give, to, when I write, and this happens, this is great because this is the one week, like I only give to the church once a month because I get paid once a month. This happens to be it. So I, can, I gave my check to the church today. But when I write the check to the church, I don't say, oh, come on. I can't believe this. Now, my water bill. What are they doing? Are they raising the rates? What's going on here? Why is the electric bill so high? I got to scout this out. Other bills I'm not as cheerful about. Taxes are around the corner. (laughs) Do it. But to the church, like. No, Lord, I'm so glad to be a part of the body and to contribute to the need, to contribute to those who maybe don't have the resources that we can bless them with. And God wants us to have a cheerful heart. So if you're writing a check and you're all grumpy, I would tell you stop writing that check. Go spend some time with God and get your heart right. Because God God wants you to give cheerfully. And then finally, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, you know, the great, you know, I don't want, I don't know, I'm going to be careful, I don't, I'm just going to delete, the great pyramid scheme of the Bible. You know, there's all, there's pyramid scheme. You do this, and you get people under you, then basically you reap benefits from all of their work. In 3 John chapter 1, well, there's only one chapter, but you've got to say for the first chapter so everybody doesn't get confused. And on the 5th through 8th verse, John's writing this guy Gaius. He was, he was a handicapped man. He loved the Lord. He couldn't go and do stuff. But as saints, this was before saints as somebody who's trusted in Christ, believers, as they were serving the Lord and they were passing through the town, there was no Motel 6, there was no Ramada, there was no place for them to stay. He would open up his house to them. He would let them stay with them. He would feed them and care for them. And then 
when they left, he would give them whatever money he could give them to help them with their journey. And the apostle John had heard about this, and he wrote Third John to this guy, Gaius. And I, I like love the guy. I don't know that Anna will let me if we have a boy named Gaius, but I, I would. I like it, you know. Well, we got other thoughts, though. There's not too many Gaiuses around, but he's really a great guy. And he says that you gave, and as they go out with that gift, your account's being credited. Like, as we support, as we give to missions, as stuff is happening, we get credit. And seeing Bobby here today, like, like really this church, like the giving that's allowed me to be in the ministry, like, quite frankly, I can stay out all night with her as Elle is passing because the church has provided for me to give that freedom. And that for me to be included in one of his like last words before he went to say, Gunner, grab my hand. Thank you for caring for my wife. Like I hear that with tears in my eyes. But like the overwhelming, what he said, what he did is thank you all Valley Baptist Church for giving so that Gunner is free to take care of my wife in this way. That's kind of what I heard. And it's powerful and that we all that like we get part in this. The work that's happening in Mongolia and China and Africa, like we all as we give through our church, we get credit for that. And it's awesome. Larry wrote in my notes, hi, Gunner. He always messes with me. So at this point, I want to say hi, Larry. I love Larry's sense of humor. He's always messing with me. So sometimes I'm chuckling up here and it's because of this guy. But going back to the verse that we started with, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. It says, honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with wine. When I look at this, the most important thing I see in the discussion of money See, it's not about you coming to church and you paying the church or giving money so that you, like God kind of is weighing your scale so on the day you die, like hopefully you have more good than bad. That's not the, that this is a relationship with God. That God loves you. He died for you while you were still sinning. Before you were even born, Jesus on the cross knew you and died for you. He loves you. He wants relationship with you. And when I read this passage, it's about a person who has a relationship with God that they want to honor this person, that they want to they, they want them to look down and be pleased. And then in my life, as I encountered this relationship with God and I started growing. And when Miles started convicting me about tithing. And I started giving a little, but then it started like the conviction of God is greater than any. Like, like when you're convicted by God, the only way to get out from under it is to obey what he says. Like it's the only way. I've tried every other way. There's only way is to be obedient. And so then I started tithing. Question always comes up. But what if we have all this debt? Should we not tithe? And get, like, I can't answer for you. I can only answer for me. I absolutely think if you're in debt, look, the first step is to begin giving to God. Because as I started tithing, literally giving 10% of my gross income, would it, as I wrote that check, pray, Lord, help me to have a cheerful attitude. Can you use this? 
and I gave it, what it did is it started transferring like my thought or changing my thoughts. Because God wouldn't leave me alone. I thought tithing, oh, I'll write the tithe check, and he'll stop hassling me. <laughs> and I could just cruise the rest of the way. I wrote the check. <laughs> it's like, hey, Gunnar, I want to talk to you about that 90%. Because I was like mathematical, calculator out. I had my pay stub from the government. Went to public school, so I needed a calculator to figure out 10%. Yeah, the whole decimal thing. I still use the calculator. <laughs> right down, down to the penny. Hey, that 90%, I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> what do you want to talk to me about that for? It's like, you realize that's mine too. <laughs> Wait a minute. I gave you your 10%. Leave me alone with this. This is mine to do with whatever. It's like, no, honor me with your wealth. I've entrusted you with this. How are you, how are you managing this that's on loan? And then I started to get terribly convicted about debt. Like the whole, like suddenly now, like after a number of years of paying the credit card and seeing that I pay and like the principal would barely go down and to see the interest, like like, this is really bad management. I got to get out of this debt. I need to start paying off this debt. It took a long time. And as I gave, as I paid down the debt, I realized that the whole, that there was great freedom being able to to serve him. My dad, the retired financial advisor, thinks that Ann and I like made a great financial investment. Totally on accident. It had nothing to do with it. We got married. Get married, you're supposed to like buy a house. Got married in 2002, so we bought a tiny little condo. We're big into tiny little places, you know, <laughs> like a tiny little condo. It's 2002, and then I knew I was getting out of the Navy in 2005. And I was like, man, I was having so much anxiety. I told you guys many times, I have the gift of worrying. So worried. And I like crunching numbers. Like, so if you like worry and you're a numbers person, you can like exponentially compound your worry. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. I got a little. <laughs> and so, so, so 2002, I bought the house, but I knew that three years away, like I'm, like I have like the 50-year master plan in my mind. Some people like want a year plan, two-year plan, five-year plan. I like look way long range. God has been working on me in this. But it's like, okay, I'm getting out of March 2005. How am I going to earn a lit? Like, you guys don't understand. I was in the Navy since I was 18 years old, 15 days after high school. My whole getting paid had nothing to do with work. I mean, I know that there was, but the people I worked for didn't pay me. It was like money just showed up on the 1st and the 15th, whether I deserved it or not. It was just there. So the whole concept of like getting out and having to work and then like that you get reimbursed for things that you do sort of thing, terrifying. I kind of saved a little bit. I'm like, okay, well, my thought was is that I would just never be able to earn a dollar after I got out of the Navy. And so, okay, and I, we're going to get out in March 2005 and saved enough that we got about nine months. And then I, I think we're going to be homeless. Like, that's kind of how I thought. <laughs> Compounded with, I really wanted to, here, Lord, here I am. But we own this condo. So how could I go anywhere if we own this condo? So we sold it in 2004, like <laughs> accidentally at the peak of the market. So we sold our condo. 
And it's like, okay, Lord, we started interviewing. We interviewed with SIM. We looked at Tucson. All of these places ended up in Valley Center. But I knew that if I had the mortgage, I was locked into that place. Like I couldn't leave that area until we solved it. Then we rented and we kind of prayed and we're seeking the Lord for a number of years. Ended up in Valley Center. And then after we were here for a while, it's like, okay, we're going to buy. We found a, you know, in the, literally, I think the cheapest house in Valley Center at the time. Now there's a whole lot more that are cheaper. And it's like, no, Lord, I think we're here. We're going to buy this house. Then January, I think it was 6 of 2008 happened. It was my worst Sunday of Valley Baptist Church. I was like three, it was, it must have been like the, yeah, it was the six. We were 10 days away from closing escrow. We were beyond the whole back and out period. At church that day, there were six of us. It was cold. I didn't want to turn on the heater because I didn't think we could pay for the bill. And of that six people, it was me, my wife, and Grace. And then we had two visitors from our old church. The chapel came up to encourage us. Sat there and said, folks, I'm not turning on the heater. We're just going to do this and go on. Man, I just totally threw myself into the deep end with a big old weight around my neck by buying this house. Because you can't go anywhere with a debt. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like when you're enslaved to it. And I'm not saying a mortgage is bad. We have it. But you're committed. You're not free to, to go wherever. And this is kind of where God's landed me. Trying to figure out. I reached this point. It didn't work out. But so for the last number of years, the whole tithing thing, to say, no, Lord, I'm going to be committed. Right around that time, God was still like saying, okay, you're tithing. You're getting close to paying off your debt. I think I was, I think I'd paid off my final debt like a few months before Anna and I got married. But like in the premarital counseling, I had to do some juggling because her dad was doing the premarital counseling. And so I was giving. And Anna and I, like on Thursdays, our 10-year anniversary, so this is like about 10 years ago, like totally scored on a wife. Like the best wife ever. Totally think that. But at the time, I was still like, kind of like, I mean, I was passionate for the Lord, but in many ways, I was still like a baby Christian or whatever. Like I had been growing, I was passionate, I was zeal. And I knew that she, like, what was she thinking marrying me? What I was, what I was thinking. So I was really trying to like, you know, make sure that she would seal the deal and we'd go through with this. I was trying to like impress her a little bit. I mean, so much so that I thought like, what's she thinking saying yes to marry me? When I went to ask her dad, if I could have his blessing to marry her, he said, yes, but I walked away from him. I'm like, there's no way he said, yes. Like, what was he thinking? I went back like three days later and said, Hey John, I know that you said I had your blessing. But you understand when you said that, like, I have like a ring and I'm intending on asking her to marry me. Like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, Gunner, like, go for it. And so then we got engaged and we were getting married. And see, Anna, like, always, you know, I, I was totally wanting to impress her. Like, show her how, like, Christian I was and how much I love the Lord. She, like, wanted to take a vow of poverty when she was a little kid. That's a Catholic thing. That's not really like what. So thankfully, I got the clause by, you know, leaving my Catholic roots. But when we got married, she's like, well, we don't want gifts. When you get married, people are going to give you gifts like there's no way out of it. So we kept the toasters and the the, the ironing iron and, you know, crock pots. I think we've got three crock pots. We said, no cash, no cash. Nobody give cash. They said, no, we want to give cash. We're going to give cash. 
So we did our honeymoon and we came back. But before we did this, I kind of said, oh, I have a great idea, Anna. Our good friend Krista, who's about to go to the Middle East to be a missionary, how about we take all the money and we'll give it to her? She's like, that's an awesome idea. So we got back from our honeymoon. We're opening all the envelopes, check after check after checks are coming in. I'm the numbers guy. I saw that it was like, I mean, we're pushing over $2,000. And I look at Anna, and I'm like, what exactly did we say? <laughs> did we say that we give her 10%? Did we say 50%? She's like, God, we said all. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. That's exactly, I'm a man of my words. So I wrote the check out for the 2000 stuff into Krista. Walked down to the, our little mailbox saying, put the check in the thing. Never written a check that big ever before my life at that point. Put it in there. And I go to our mailbox and I open it and I see the you know, junk mail, of course. And then there were like two like old style government checks. Like at this time, they were even old style. Like, you know, where you could see the address through the cut in the envelope and you could tell that the address was written on the old like government check, the real nice, fun ones. There were two. And I opened them, both of them, $2,000. I mean, a total of $2,000, both of them combined. And I'm thinking, I'm walking back dumbfounded. I just put this check in, and here's two checks. How does this work? And I walked up, and Anna's like, what is that from? I'm like, well, it's February. It's not, there's no tax return, and I get electronically deposited. And I'm like, she's like, do you think you should call somebody? I'm like, no, no. (laughs) I'm not calling anybody. That's right. I'm sure it has something to do with my government work, and they're just paying me back for something I did somewhere. Let's get these deposited as fast as we can. And I'm not saying that God works like that, like always, like that he definitely you give. and He, But I can tell you in this, as you give, as God steps up the notches in your percentage, and as another disclaimer, see, I come in here on Saturdays, and I kind of straighten out the chairs you guys are all pretty diligent about where you sit, so I kind of pray for the people sitting there. And I'm really good at having conversations with myself. I'm a great, like, I can crack myself up. And I remember straight out of the chairs last night, you know, guys like Rick Warren, who, like, he was a pastor's kid, had this huge longing to, like, from, a, from the time he was six months, he wanted to reverse tithe. And he reversed tithes now, and he has a New York, like, he gives a lot of money. I've never had that aspiration. Never at all. None. Like, it was a stretch to go to 10%. And then it was like, okay, Lord, like, this is training wheel, so often you get make me want to give so much, like, more. And But what I've seen is that as I've given, God blesses you. Like, as you stretch, as you reach out by faith and you give, he always has blessed me. And I'm not saying necessarily money. Like, that was, like, the one time that I got the money back. That was, like, that was, I think, that was my one time. Because now whenever I give, I think in faith, it's like, check the mail. Like it's never going to happen because now my heart's right, wrong. But every time he blesses me in some way that there was no way I could have foreseen it. Can't tell you the benefits of being debt free. And I highly encourage you. The same thing I think for my life is the same thing I think in leading this church. And there's so much joy this year from where the church has been over the last like I mean, since the 40s or whatever, but in particular the last five years, like afraid of turning on the heat, to right now in our bond account to pay off this church building, all the money's there, and in March all the bonds will clear and the church is debt-free. Church is debt-free. That's like, 
we can clap. And that's, and, and that's because of all of, like all of us working together and giving. And Lloyd Beth back there, Lloyd Beth has been around the church the longest. And when I did, you can raise your hand, Lloyd Beth. I love Lloyd Beth. She's a sweetheart. And I think she just became a, is a great grandmother, a great grandmother again last week, which is super sweet. Six great grandchildren. And in this, she said something to me in this journey of the restart. She said, you know what? We've always sacrificed like in our building and not and having less so that we can partner with missionaries, that we can give more to the global work. And I think that's so, like, it's not like, I don't have any aspirations of being some huge mega church, but with that debt being gone, it's awesome that we're already, like, increasing our support to the missionaries that we support and that we, by their own testimony, how we treat our missionaries worldwide is far different than any other church that they have a relationship with. So to kind of end with some practical wisdom, what I'm teaching my kids, Grace, who's about to turn six years old, When it comes to money, the nuts and bolts, what I believe with a straight face and what I would apply, do apply to my own life with money, I think that you should tithe as training wheels to giving 10% to your local church. I believe that. I do that. I have done that since God convicted me of that whenever that was. I think that you should save or invest 10% also. And then with that 80%, That's yours to honor God with and providing for your family and being generous. That we're not stingy people to trust that God has all of the resources and we are going to stand before him for how we gave account. And when it comes to money, trust God. Anna's dad, he literally, he's my father-in-law, but he's one of my best friends in the world. He's been walking with the Lord for a long time as a missionary and not having... He didn't carry a credit card for a long time. He may have one now. But kind of walking with him and seeing his life and also George Farrington. So often, when we run into needs, we rob God from being able to provide for us or bless us when we rip out the credit card or we apply for a loan. Because when we do that, we're sort of taking matters into our own hands instead of saying, Lord, there's this need. You, I have this much money. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. And you start praying and you start seeking him. And it's amazing how he'll provide if you allow him to provide. One of George Farrington's favorite songs is an old hymn, God Will Take Care of You. I'm going to read a few lines from it because it's so true that God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day, over all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. All you may need, he will provide. God will take care of you. Nothing you ask will be denied. God will take care of you. No matter what may be the test, God will take care of you. Lean weary one upon his breast. God will take care of you. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your provision. Lord, I come before you and I just thank you, Lord, for this relationship that I have with you. I thank you for your patience towards me and everybody in this room. Father, we, or I, I can only speak for myself, Lord, but I confess, Lord, my mismanagement of the funds that you've entrusted me with. Lord, I thank you that you um, have helped me to see things your way.
Father, I pray for those in this room. Lord, I don't know how everybody's doing financially, but we live in a time in our culture with our economy where people are struggling, where people are in debt. And so, Lord, for those people in this room that are drowning, that can't see a way out, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to make that first step in the right direction. Lord, give them the discipline to hang in there, to fight off the debt, or to get out of it. And Father, we pray that as we um, view our wealth and our resources, we pray that you would help us to honor you. Lord, we thank you for just, you're so good to us. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.